Hello, you're listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity. I'm Ellie Stuhler. Over the next few weeks leading up to the London Design Festival in mid-September, we'll be focusing on the goings-on of London's industrial and furniture design community. Joining us in conversation today from the pod at White City Place, John Marshall and Matt Webb. John is the design director at MAP, an esteemed agency and research-oriented industrial design consultancy he co-founded with Jay Osgerby and Edward Barber in 2012. Their projects span the gamut, ranging from interactive exhibitions for Google and for Fortnum and Mason, the remastering of the iconic Spork. Matt leads the Startup Accelerator program at the digital agency RGA, which launched in 2016. He's somewhat of a maverick. He's advised successful tech-focused businesses, such as Technology Will Save Us. He also convinced the BBC to podcast Once Upon a Time. And last year, he launched Machine Supply, a pop-up vending machine of books. On the agenda, the mismatched metabolisms of hardware versus software, the challenge of the Internet of Things, the inspirational force that is science fiction writing, and product marketing. We hear first from John. Doing industrial design, it's a long battle from idea to production. And what's really exciting is like in the last couple of weeks, we've had like a lot of things go through into um, manufacturing. One of them is, is this product. I know this is not going to come out very well on the radio, but so th- so this week, so w- sometimes you get these really exciting moments when something comes from China, product, like a final production version of product. So we've been working on this product, Susie Snooze, for a startup called Bleep Bleeps for the last year, and we've just finally got these production samples through, which we're just playing around with in the studio. So and th- and that's this pretty is, exciting. I mean, this is bright orange i've been watching your instagram and you've been agonizing it's quite weird because like the top is shiny plastic but the bottom is felt yes and i've been watching i think it's bleep bleeps instagrams agonizing over the exact shade of orange felt yeah uh to choose um so you got the felt color right then that's that's what we do this is the final this is the final felt we had to buy a lot of felt (laughs) um so yeah so this week has been uh, getting getting samples of stuff from China and, and reviewing them. And then I've also been working with a couple of really, really early stage startups trying to understand, you know, whether we can work together, how how they'll get funding and how how we would work together. So writing proposals for that. And the rest of my week tends to be just working with my team. How big um, is the team now? So I've got eight full-time designers and then we have some freelancers and an internship program. It's all designers, is it? So not not they're all industrial electrical designers. engineering. No, we're we're a monoculture. <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting thing. Like whether it's possible to kind of yeah, I want I want to uh, like get your thoughts on that. Like kind of product strategy when it's just design, not kind of a mixed team of like design and technology and business all at once. Yeah, I mean it's it's. Sometimes I feel like we should have a more multidisciplinary team, but um, the thing with industrial design is, you know, so I've got eight industrial designers, but we're all radically different in a way because some come from more of a furniture background, some are more technology, I've been working in, in designing smartphones and things like that. And then others are more strategic, so they have a more of a business sense. Some of them are graphic designers who've retrained as industrial designers. So um, although it sounds... Um, 
quite narrow, I think the team that I have is, is pretty broad-based. Mm. And the most important thing is we're, we're part of a, a group as well. So we have a sister company that's an architecture company called Universal Design Studio. And then the founders of our group, um, Edward Barber and Jay Oscarby, they're furniture designers. So across the studio as a whole, it's pretty multidisciplinary and pretty mixed. Um, in fact, that's one of the things I'm doing this week is we have every Thursday one sort of um, one or two people from the whole group present to the whole group, 70 people. So one of the things I'm doing is putting together a presentation of a, a big tech project we're doing for one of the sort of really big tech companies um, to show our in-house team. And that's always really nice because you get feedback from architects and furniture right. designers and admin people. I think that kind of sharing is so important, right? So the thing... The thing I'm doing at the moment is I'm working, as you know, with RGA Ventures. And last year we ran a startup accelerator for Internet of Things companies, sort of focused on hardware in, you know, in the UK, which seems to be really, like, really happening right now. We're just thinking about doing another program, which would, you know, it's kind of not certain yet, but it would kind of happen again, like announced later this year, maybe run next year. One of the things I want to replicate, something we did in this, was founder stories. So we brought founders in from previous, like who had already kind of had some success in doing startups and just did, you know, and a, a conversation, you know, we sort of sat down in the evening and just went through their story from, you know, beginning to end. So we kind of know where the company ended up. They kind of got acquired or, you know, they're still doing it. They've raised a lot of money. And we went back to kind of like day one and just got them to narrate it. And it was like, it's always a incredible thing for me, how much people get out of just hearing other people's perspectives like it doesn't need to be kind of like any kind of formal feedback session it doesn't need to be a review or a crit it is just a kind of a yes a chat yeah see it see it through other people's eyes do you, do you know that's something that i find interesting about actually about the hardware startup scene in london is that there's a real sense of community because traditionally um designing products or and especially technology is so highly secretive like, I'm sure there's stuff we're, we're both working on we can't talk about. But the really great thing about the, the hardware startup scene is this sense of community, people sharing stories, working together, things like accelerators. So I've got a question for you, Matt. Can you explain what an accelerator <laughs> is? <laughs> because that's your day job. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, one of the weird things about startups is that they, you know, they often don't have all the different skills in-house, right? Like, because you're a very, you know, as a small company, you have a very limited number of people. Um, and you can, you know, you can be really, really good at, like, certain things, like kind of sales or partnerships or technology or design, but there are other things you kind of don't have. And one of the things people often don't have is expertise about how it's been done before. Like, a kind of a big network of people who can kind of give you lots of advice, figure out what's robust about what you're doing. And that's that makes it really hard to get from the, you know, we've just got a kind of an idea or a first prototype or a first product to we're a kind of a rapidly scaling business. An accelerator's job is to take a company through that uh, through that transition from the kind of the, you know, kind of just a sort of a, a baby company to something which is like growing fast. Uh, and there's a few ways you can do it. Um, the way we do it at RGA is we work in a class. So we bring 10 companies to go three months and there's kind of really intensive... Uh, help with them so actual kind of creative input but also just introducing to a big network and you know you invest in the companies at the same time so you're like kind of on the hook for their success as well it's a good kind of incentive 
and then you carry on kind of helping them afterwards. You know, there are there are other ways of exposing people to that kind of broad expertise as well. And, you know, one of the ways is just really making the most of the community. So, you know, kind of talking to lots of people, going to events, getting feedback like that. Working with external companies works really well as well. So I think it's kind of, it, it does a bit of all those kind of things. I think startup world is so much about like culture as well, like what's the best way to attack a problem? And you get that by hanging around people who've kind of done it before and getting their sort of view. So I think, I think that's, it, it seems to work. You know, I was a skeptic to begin with and I kind of saw it from the inside and it kind of, it seems to work. I think one, one thing is that accelerators are a very kind of American idea. And in London, in the hardware scene, something we do much better, I think, than they do in the States is use agencies. So, you know, I talk with hardware companies in the States and they often develop hardware, do industrial design internally. And I think that's sometimes a, sometimes a waste of time. Because you develop hardware once and then you have to go and sell it for four years, right? Yes. You don't want to kind of build that expertise. It yes, might be better to work with a, like, well, a, a product design agency. You know, not not that I'm like plugging map here or anything, but, you yeah. know, like kind of seeing as we're in a room together. No, but um, that's, that's, you know, that's that's one of the things our clients say to us because we're working on projects that span across all sorts of different fields, mostly technology, I have to say, but also some non-technology. And clients like the fact that, you know, for example, this this sample that I got this week is a, a smart baby monitor. But, you know, we're developing that at the same time as we're creating coding kits for kids or or um, a new type of um, spork. <laughs> so, you know, you you allow those things to feed off each other and then you become the sort of holder of some general themes and trends that are influencing design, which you can uh, actually apply for the benefit of all your clients. And that's, that's the culture that you, you talk about, you know, and that's, that's the sort of, and the interaction with other agencies and the, the community in general, So I think, I think makes the work yeah. richer. London's agency scene is really strong because agencies know how to work with startups and vice versa. But isn't there a risk that the kind of, like, because you, I mean, there are, when you were making, like, let's say, Susie Snooze or any of the others, there are all kinds of ideas that your team are going to be having, like insights they're going to be having, which are, you know, I think the founders of Bleep Bleeps could benefit from. Like, yes. isn't there a risk that those, those new ideas that come up for you don't make it back to the company because it's outsourced? Like, how do you, how do you make sure those things are connected up? I don't know how to answer that. I mean, that we, we have to be quite... So first is we, we have to be quite disciplined about what thinking belongs to the clients and what thinking is more general. And I don't know. I mean, what, how do you manage it? Because you, you work with, with clients. I and mean, for example, you, you have in the accelerator, you have, let's say, a cohort, mm. which for me is a bit like the client base. And I think you have to accept that, that ideas cross from one to the other. And I think that's kind of the goal. One of the interesting things about very young companies is that product strategy is marketing strategy, is business strategy. You know, that is is your technology strategy. They're all kind of the same thing. So, you know, when I advise a couple of hardware startups and we spend, you know, I spend quite a lot of time kind of thinking with them, like, what does the PL look like? Like, are you going to match the the rhythm of your, you know, your operating costs with the rhythm of your revenue because if they kind of get out of sync your kind of companies like you know yes. it's, it's difficult like do you spend time with you know the founders you know with the any of the companies who work understanding their business models 
and their technology strategy in order to inform the product design. Yes. And and vice versa. Like, you know, do you kind of feedback to them? Or your tech might yeah, be better in, out here. Increasingly, you know, so working with, with hardware startups increasingly, you know, because it's it's so risky and it takes such a long time, it takes so much tenacity from the founders that in, increasingly when we're having these early stage discussions, um, I I ask to see the business plan and I ask to, you know, to see what the three-year plan is and and to get a feeling. And, you know, our founders come from different places. So some of our clients have a business background, some of them don't. So the ones that don't have a business background might need support there. And it's not what I do, but I have some knowledge gained from from sort of working in the industry. Um, I wish there was more support for early stage startups. Good software requires good industrial design. Are, are there any other things that, that um, businesses need? Good product marketing. Marketing. Well, product marketing. So I'd say okay. the same thing. You know, like uh, when you when you look at the product, can you tell what you're going to do with it instantly and how it fits into your life, even if that's not the entire story of it? Um, but I think if you can't if you can't do that, you know, if the price doesn't match its aesthetics, if it doesn't kind of tell you how to use it on its kind of surface, uh, if you can't do that, you're always going to be kind of pushing uphill. And so you stay, I think, in prototyping for a really long time in order to make sure that happens. And it's really it's really tricky because to get all these different things matching up, you know, like the business, you know, what's in the grain of the technology, what you can do with this team, the, the sort of the product design kind of marketing itself. Like in order to get all these things matching up, you have to kind of break your expectations uh, quite a bit. So, you know, it's not just a matter of design as in we know what the constraints are and we know who the audience is and we have to kind of, you know, design for that. You have to find some way of revealing, you know, what are the unknown unknowns? How can you make the material tell you what you didn't already know? And the things I know how to do that with software, right? It's very easy with software to make quite a quick prototype in your phone, use it and go, well, that's not very satisfying or, oh, that feels like something else. How do you do it for hardware? What's your process? Well, we come from a sort of um, a background of making. So mm. even with very complicated sort of digital experiences, connected products, we find just making stuff really basically from cardboard or from foam. We use a lot of foam or timber. And then playing around with things. You know, I think you need to have a product in your hand and then act out how you're going to use it and to sort of complete the experience with the digital part we often use film so we'll we'll make mock-ups of the product so you can you can feel the product and experience it and then we'll then film that and fake up the digital experience or or whatever the software experience is so if, if the product makes a sound you know it's really easy to overlay that on a film if it has a screen sometimes we'll use a kind of green screen um, digital effects but often in early stage prototypes just using bits of card you know or having a phone and having a piece of card on it that represents the the screen that you'd have on the the smartphone which is activating the product I, I just don't I don't think there's any substitute for making and testing things physically in the real world you're listening to thought starters with map design director John Marshall and MD of RGA's UK Accelerator program, Matt Webb. It's this shifting experience bit that I'm 
interested because the mode of exploring different things it could be can change quite radically. I'm just sort of peering over at the moment. I can see in your bag you have a uh, you have another product which is a Beeline, which is a it's like a little bike computer. So Compass your bike. I'm actually an advisor to the company, so just kind of full disclosure on that. Um, but you know it kind of fits on your bike and it kind of tells you roughly which way to go. So it's kind of you know serendipitous navigation. What's quite interesting about this product is it's it's hardware with software inside it. And the software, the functionality of the software, the experience runs on the screen. And so like a mobile app, you could, in theory, update it every single week. You know, you could, with that same hardware, make it into a very utilitarian compass instead. So things can kind of change there. The um, Suzy Snooze, you know, it's a, it's a you know, sleep trainer for kids. But it could also be a remote music playing device. Yes. Or a nightlight or a baby monitor, right? Like all these different kind of things. Um, in the software world... You can make those kind of pivots and changes kind of on the fly. It can happen in a really kind of quick way. In the hardware world, once you've kind of decided what something looks like, you're committed to manufacturing that for like a year, right? True. You know, it's a the cadence of those two things. Like the gears break at yes. some point. Yeah, you're right. Well, with, with hardware, with physical products, you decide on the physical specification, the engineering specification, the technology inside, and then that's baked in. And then, as you say, you could upgrade the firmware and you could change the kind of purpose of the product. But actually, you know, for startups, I think it's, I think the cadence is probably two years. It's really hard. Once you start making a product, I think it's really hard to change it, mm. even within a two-year cycle. You can iterate it a little bit. My fear um, is that makes, like, the aesthetics of it get a bit asinine because then the tendency is to make a kind of a hardware frame that never changes, so you can update the software more frequently. Yeah, and, then, you know, if you if you think about for the environment, maybe that's better. You know, maybe it's better to have things that are kind of neutral, and then you can load whatever software you want into them, and they, they become those things. And actually, there have been some projects that are sort of modular structures where the hardware can be swapped out. The thing is that those, and they seem like a good idea, those modular hardware things that you can build your own, like the um, the modular smartphone that Google were looking into, you can sort of build your own version of the phone. The trouble is that those sort of modular products, you know, building modularity into a product actually increases the cost dramatically. So it becomes just as risky as just baking in the hardware. And actually what we're seeing is, you know, the, the reverse is true. So a product like Beeline is just doing one thing really well. And in doing that, it somehow finds its place in people's lives in a way that something that tries to do too many things sort of ends up being master of none. Yeah. Um, so what we do do though is we, when we design products, we try, to, we try to think about, you know, a three to four year lifespan and how, you know, you can upgrade this, the, the firmware and how, you know, maybe after time, you'd need to swap the screen technology out because a new one comes in. And so we do build flexibility sort of under the hood into products. And things like um, Susie Snooze, the idea is that it, it sort of grows with the child. So it starts off as a baby monitor and then it becomes a sleep trainer. And then it does actually become just a, a smart speaker eventually and gives it a longer life. These are, these are things which aren't super familiar in a software world, I think. You go for large numbers of people who are all in the same life stage all at once. You don't kind of think about like how it stays with them kind of over 
four years. Also quite like the idea of like sunsetting stuff. Yeah. Like the, what does the end of the journey look like? Yes. Like how do people let go of it? Yeah. Well, you've, you've experienced that with Little Printer. So mm. you, you, you've been through the, the sunset phase of a product. So how, how yeah, not, you not want to deliberately. I hasten to add. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to talk about that? I mean, we, you know, what, one of the things I did when, uh, you know, when it became apparent the company, you know, was not going to be able to support it long term was take the software and open source the bit of it that people really liked which was the messaging functionality. So kind of, you know, this, this product, which is a little cute fax for the home, make a new version of that, which is open source, and let the community of uh, very passionate people sort of take it on and run it on their own, uh, you, know, on, you know, for themselves. And I think that's, that's, that maybe points at a future for connected hardware, which is how, how is it possible for the physical thing to be the shell of something else as well? Like, can a community come and take over the software behind it? And this is kind of what I mean about the different cadences. You know, we're quite used to, I think, in the web and mobile app world, a company, you know, having a go at something or iterating or finding an audience and maybe not going on for more than, like, two years. But that hardware is going to stay around for a long time. So there's kind of a obligation, I guess, for people in the world to make sure that kind of lasts for longer. Yes. I don't, I don't know. It's a, kind of a, it's, a, it's a question that connected hardware is kind of grappling with, I think. I mean, you, we, we're talking about the cadence of the product in a way once it's in the market. Do you have any thoughts on how that cadence works in the development process? So industrial design is a sort of is a rather long development process from initial concept through manufacturing and so on. It can take a year, whereas with, uh, with an app, you can have, like you were saying earlier, you can have a mock-up done in a week. Well, how, how do industrial designers and software designers or digital designers work together the thing i'm most excited about in the connected hardware world is when we step outside consumer so consumers like there's a there's a need to achieve scale mass manufacture which means you have to have this kind of you know one to two year development cycle which locks you in there's an area of what i call an enterprise iot which is when you take connected hardware you sell it to businesses where the numbers aren't so big and they can pay a bit more money so it's not so cost sensitive and you end up, well, you can end up in a situation where you use commodity hardware, um, and then the innovation is the service behind it. So by commodity hardware, I mean a web-connected camera, and then you use artificial intelligence to monitor the video, or a web-connected scale, you know, and yeah. a tablet, and then you use the internet to, uh, to provide the service. And what I like about that is that the product's never finished. There is no manufacturing phase. Okay. So you can keep on changing what the hardware is Yes. at that point. Uh, there's a couple of companies I know who are doing this. Hoxton Analytics is the one which does the uh, AI commodity camera. Uh, Winnow is the one which uses the Bluetooth scales. And I remember talking to Winnow about how to make connected hardware, which iterated like this. And they were like, how do we make it aesthetically good? Like, you know, if you're using these kind of off-the-shelf parts... So we, we, I remember we had a chat and we, we said, well, let's look at other places where you use modular off-the-shelf pieces and connect them together. And we started looking at gig equipment. You know, when you're on stage yes. and you've got like a mic and a That's right, speaker. Yeah. And it's all about really nice cabling. True. And I think that might be an interesting future for the design of connected hardware, which is commodity pieces coming out of factories but linked together in interesting ways where it updates on a you know, on a on a regular basis, more like software, yes. and you monitor how people are using it, and you and you kind of uh, you update bit by bit, 
and it just sidesteps the whole kind of mass manufacture phase entirely. Yeah, technology is very very complex. You know, it, it involves so many different things. It's often very very hard to communicate, and it leads to some awful things. You know, like technology can sometimes be a bit like a priesthood when nobody can understand it. But when you want to get across the power of something, you have to refer to some kind of cultural touch point and reference it in a way where people can just kind of get it. And I think the best the best medium we have for that visually is film. Yeah. You just kind of refer back to something that everyone's seen and you go, oh, it's like that. You know, books can work a bit, but I think not as many people, not as many people read them and experience them in the same way. I think yeah. books are maybe more useful at the other end of the process, less about marketing, more about, you know, inventing and exploring. Yes. I mean, look at the way you use film to prototype, right? Yes. I mean, that's the, the same thing. I mean, the, 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 the use of film for prototyping or for telling stories has come a lot from the kind of crowdfunding world. So we, we, we've definitely got this different cadence when we work with startups that want to launch on Kickstarter, for example. In fact, we're launching a couple of things in September on Kickstarter. One of them is a, for a startup called Breezy that's interested in the, the kind of pollution space and clean air for, for kids and making, making a film and dealing with these big topics is, is quite difficult in terms of storytelling. And, and then what we're finding is becoming good at that for Kickstarter and then having those, those Kickstarter films in the public domain means that some of our larger corporate clients see that and say, well, could you, could you kind of make a Kickstarter idea sort of film and I'll show that to my boss and yep. we'll try to get sign off. I'll tell you what I read about recently. I don't know if you subscribe to, uh, George Walkley does an incredible newsletter about corporate innovation. So, you know, just a, I'm a corporate innovation nerd for my sins, right? Um, but he linked in there to a New Yorker article about a new agency that just has loads of science fiction authors on staff. Wow. So you go to them and they, they write you a short story about your product or the, the future. That's incredible. Um, they can maybe make you a, a little film even. So not even they're not even bothered any longer with kind of making it a sort of realistic <laughs> Kickstarter thing. It's just like, oh, we'll just do it in it's a story. It's just pure storytelling. Yeah. Science fiction has an impact on connected products. So, you know, famously, when Spielberg was creating Minority Report, he worked with architects and, and designers and futurologists. And there was this amazing gestural interface, which became something of a kind of a, a vision. And, you know, I've heard that those sort of visions which are set in science fiction films sometimes become a sort of a north star for um, tech companies. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's it's super interesting the way those kind of interfaces make their way into the real world. So I'm, I, it's really embarrassing. I'm blanking on the uh, person's name who prototyped that kind of gestural interface yes. minority report. Um, if you ever want to figure out how... Um, Absurd it is, by the way. Just try and hold your arms at shoulder level for the duration that scene is on, and you get very fatigued. Uh, so you know it's a bit like UI meets Gitmo. It's a stress position. Um, but he he ended up working, I think, at like he commercialized the product for a bit. I think he maybe even went to work to Microsoft. So these things are kind of carried through yes. like that. Um, same thing happened in the uh, space race in the US, where companies working on technology for the space race commissioned artists do their adverts the artists were artists from science fiction stories and they would brief the artists about what to do and then the 
the artists would then take those ideas back to the science fiction authors who would like work those ideas into stories and kind of develop them more. So this is laid out in Megan Prelinger's book about art and the space race. Absolutely fascinating. So the kind of the science fiction becomes a place for people to probe what might happen in the future and set it in a plausible technology and social context. And if it seems kind of exciting, then people can kind of develop it a bit more. I mean, famously, the space elevator kind of comes about in, you know, Arthur C. Clarke's books, and yep. now there's a Japanese company building it, right? Like, yep. those kind of things happen. Um, but I think it happens in a more abstract way, more powerfully. You know, like, you know, Wikipedia, you know, you can just see the lineage to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy book Absolutely, or yeah. to the primer from Snow Crash or, like, you know, the mobile phone, the Star Trek communicator, that kind of, oh, we can just talk to people all over, right? Yes. Or, um, you know, for a different generation, uh, the Pokedex, like, right. is clearly Facebook. Yes. Right? Yeah, true. And I, th- I think I even heard that, um, you know, there was a sort of forerunner of the iPad in um, 2001, Space Odyssey. It looks and, identical. You know, it's really bizarre. Yeah, and Kubrick, you know, definitely worked with some industrial designers on, on that film. I think it's not so much about direct product design in films. It's more about kind of changing what's normal and stretching what you can imagine. And I think science fiction can do that. I think art does it very well. I've been doing a, I keep a scrapbook of the way artists are used by technology companies to kind of, to think about themselves and reflect. Um, There's a lovely piece of work done by Brendan Dawes with MailChimp in 2014. She mentioned his product just briefly. He, he, he was commissioned to design a bunch of products to physicalize email. And one of them was a light switch where there were two switches on the light switch. One was labeled lighting, so you'd flick it to turn your lights off. And the other was labeled with the icon of an email message. And you just look at it and you're like, oh, of course I should be able to turn my email off in the same way I turn my lights off. Mm. It just changes the way you think about it. Yes. And I think, do we ever see that product directly? No. But you, can, you know that that, that artifact makes engineers, designers, technologists, management, clients, all look at it together and go, how do we make a more humane way of handling email? And that will turn into user experience at some point down the line. So art, science fiction creates artifacts that help design, I believe. I really like uh, Dan Rosengard. He, he has a way of sort of working with technology. There's one piece that I saw of his where there were a load of uh, computer fans, a huge, thousands of them or hundreds of them, in a big block and then a sensor so when you walked up to this block this monolith made up of computer fans the fans next to you started spinning and kind of blew in your face and I think you know for for me we've we've cited that in lots of projects um, on our sort of mood boards as, as a sort of emotional visceral sort of physical reaction to technology in the senses that you don't normally get because the the bit of wind in your face is not something you normally get from a technology product. And I think, as you say, there are lots of, lots of artists who, who then work by themselves but also get commissioned by technology companies to, to make sense of the world around us and all this new technology that's, um, that we're being introduced to. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really pleased that it's, it's finding a way in because I think innovation on its own can end up being a bit dull yes. and just answering the questions we already know how to ask. And we do need these things to kind of open our minds a little bit more. Yeah, we could probably swap references all day. We could, but uh, yeah. I imagine it's probably best to get back to the day to day. Slightly, slightly less exciting, and yeah. uh, wrap up there. Thanks very much for speaking. Yeah, it was great. Thank you, Matt.
That was MAP Design Director John Marshall and MD of RGA's UK Accelerator Programme, Matt Webb. This has been Thought Starters, recorded at the pod at White City Place. Thought Starters is a DN Co. project for White City Place, produced by David Michon, recorded and edited by Claire Crofton and Claire Urban. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, find us at whitecityplace.com, on Twitter or Instagram at whitecityplace, or shoot us an email at podcast at whitecityplace.com. And subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes, Acast, and Stitcher. Give us a rating and write us a comment. It really helps. We'll see you next time.